Atamari, welcome to First Up. It's Ratu, Tuesday, the 21st of June. It's a wiki called Matariki. Coming up, parts of Spain are burning as Europe swelters under a record heatwave. We hear how children's charity Kids Can is making a huge difference, but they still need your help. Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis talks by-elections and the difficulty of seeing a GP. And fans of Tongan Rugby League, show us, you know, we're quite good at sitting on our hands, aren't we? They show us how to be proper supporters ahead of Saturday's clash with the Kiwis. The score will be 65 for the Matematonga MMT. Matematonga, Matematonga, Matematonga. It's cold. It's cold in New Zealand. Oi, oi, oi. Uh, that's the sound you make when you do that. And this is one of those ones where it's the old classic. You know your friend that always wears shorts and all weather? They'll still be wearing shorts and all weather. But they'll have a jersey on. A little, no, it's just bloody leg. It's all right. Uh, also, by the way, too, uh, listeners in Wellington, the, yesterday was a bit of problems with the trains. Um, I see apparently uh, looks like there might still be some disruptions for you as well. Software problem is uh, what they're saying it is, is is the problem there. So uh, just be aware of that on your commute into our nation's capital this morning. But we begin uh, first up um, in Japan today, where we have news of a plot involving voodoo. I know. But first, Tokyo correspondent Chris Gilbert told me that the Japanese police are gearing up for a Mount Fuji eruption. Yeah, so a whole bunch of focus groups over the last couple of years have been doing modelling work about what the eventuality of an eruption of Mount Fuji would look like. There's not really that much evidence at the moment that you know something might be imminent anytime soon, although it has been 300 years since the last eruption in 1707. It is kind of like a dormant volcano which, with periods of activity. And uh, there was an earthquake last year centered around Mount Fuji, which caused some concerns, uh, at least online, which weren't really eventualized. But Japan National Police Association, looking at modeling from the last couple of years, have been like, okay, let's get ready for this, especially the dust, the dust from the, the volcanic eruption. They assume or they expect that the dust from a Mount Fuji a volcanic eruption could paralyze the city of Tokyo within hours from now you know like the the commuting system the train system everything just shuts down the power shuts down and what they learned i think from 2011 with the earthquake and tsunami is they want to prepare for a complicated disaster situation not just an eruption but an earthquake that might trigger an eruption and maybe also a tsunami they have to think about these things and so now they've started handing out dust masks to all the police divisions at least to ensure that they can do their job. 36,000 police will be needed in this event they expect. And so they put $300,000 in the budget last year aside to get uh, goggles and dust masks to enable the police to do their job in this kind of situation. It might not sound like a huge planning you know, uh, response to the imminent explosion of a major volcano. But remember back at the start of the pandemic, what was the one thing that everybody needed that nobody had? PPE. Mm. And it's the same kind of thing again, making sure that we, uh, that we, I, I suppose we, but also the police in, in general uh, have the equipment that they need to, um, to be able to do their job. And speaking of we, the general population, 
you know, I, I was talking with my wife about this last night being like, well, you know, if this happens, we would not be in the best position. You know, we went out and, and got our water supplies and instant ramens and our rice and our hiking supplies really there if we had to bolt the city. So I think people in general are talking about this and are preparing for um, just in case uh, the worst case scenario does happen. This is great. Let's piece together three parts of this story. A senior citizen, a Shinto shrine and a voodoo doll. Talk me through it. Yeah, the ultimate combination for a good time. Um, yeah, uh, a man in uh, Chiba that's uh, just east of Tokyo has been trying to put a curse on none other but Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and has been arrested for trying to do so. The man used what's called a wada ninyo, that means straw doll, and he <laughs> featured the Russian president's face and nailed uh, many of them over successive days uh, to a tree in a Shinto shrine in Matsudo. It's happened at least 10 times he's done this. Just a bit of context, what a Ningyo, you know, Japan is a land of many, 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 many different cultures and rituals and routines, depending where you go in the country. Thousands of different cultures inside Japan. What a Ningyo can be used for marriages, good things, bad things, but the Ushin no Kokumairi, which is the one that he used, was very popular during the Edo period about 500 years ago and involves, back in that time, cursing people you hate by making little straw dolls that resemble them, nailing them to a tree using a five-inch nail at a Shinto shrine at the time of the ox. That's between one and three in the morning. Usually, it says in the article I read about this, it involves a jealous woman wearing a coat with a mirror hung around her neck, an iron ring around her head with candles attached to it. Security footage shows the man not wearing any of this. It was a nice-looking man wearing a nice business casual shirt and pants very reminiscent of a dad on his way to the driving range and apparently if you do this every day for a week by the seventh day the cursed person will die it will be ineffective if you are spotted by another mid-ritual but anyway the president of russia is still alive so this guy must have been spotted he also did it in the middle of the day which you're not meant to do not only did the dolls feature Putin's face, but also a handwritten note featuring the Russian president's birthday and his age and the words praying for his death. Performing this curse isn't illegal in Japan, but trespassing is where he nailed the doll to the tree. And also vandalism is by using the nail on the tree. And so when police turned up to 72-year-old Mitsunobu Hino's house to arrest him for these things, Mr. Mitsunobu allegedly said, just for that. <laughs> which I absolutely love. He's my new favorite and, guy. And I share the sentiment. Yeah, I share the, I share the sentiment. And, and I will just leave on like this quote from uh, someone online, which says, please don't use shrines for your own personal rituals. And I, I also echo that sentiment as well. Mm, so do we all. Uh, that's our correspondent in Japan, Chris Gilbert. If you're listening to us live, it's 12 past five here at First Up on RNZ National. Let's go to Spain right now where firefighters are battling wildfires caused by one of the earliest heat waves on record. Joining me now is our roving reporter in Spain, Ali J, joins us from Porto Marin. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, Nathan. I'm good. How are you? Very good, thank you. So um, where are the worst of the fires? 
So there have been quite a few bird ones in Spain, a lot of them in northern Spain, um, and quite a few of them still burning. So they've had fire crews, helicopters, emergency um, services out there. The worst of them have been in Castile and Leon and Sierra de la Culebra, which is sort of in the northwest of the country. So they've had to evacuate a number of villages and the fire has been going for a few days. Just yesterday I was on a train from... Um, Madrid to Arenze, which went past the site of the fire. And you could see sort of this lush forest and then plumes of smoke still across quite a big area. And so this is all this is all down to the heat wave that's been going through Europe. Some places in Spain, in Madrid, they've seen 40 degrees. It's it's broken records here. In Valencia as well, they had a day where it hit 39 degrees, which is higher than they have ever seen. I mean, in the past, today and yesterday, in the past couple of days, the, the temperature has started to drop again and it has seen quite a lot of rain. So authorities here have been using this time to get the fires under control in northern Spain um, but it is meant to heat up again towards the end of the week. So it can't just be in Spain what, what about uh, uh, the heat wave in the rest of Europe? So you're right, it's not just in Spain. These these heat waves have been across a couple of countries as well. Um, one Italian minister has called them apocalyptic, which is quite a strong um, word, but quite, I mean, it's been boiling across Europe. Italy has a drought at the moment. Its um, biggest river is 10 feet lower than what it usually is at this time of year. Um, they've got 200 towns which have water restrictions. Lots of people talking online about kind of how low the, the river is. Um, their agriculture minister as well has called for a state of emergency um, and said there are places there that haven't seen rain for months. So we can see as well um, in Germany, they've had temperatures over 38 degrees and wildfires on the outskirts of Berlin. Um, it's meant, I mean, it's meant to cool down a little bit, but we are getting into summer and lots of people are talking about how this is driven by um, climate change. And once the effects of climate change um, get more and more serious, this could become quite a regular occurrence. Yeah, this is horrible. Um, now, the uh, another National Party lover slogan, misery for millions would have been one they would have really enjoyed, but they didn't use it. Let's go. Um, and we're talking this time in the UK about a huge rail strike. Why are they striking? And what does this mean for British train passengers? <laughs> Oh, have you got me there, Ali? Oh, I've lost you. Oh, sorry. I'm back with you now. So oh. we are seeing, I mean, this is this is one of the biggest train strikes that's happened in the UK for 30 years. It's going to affect 80% of train services across the UK, 13 rail operators. Uh, and also on top of that, there's a tube strike on Tuesday. So these thousands of staff, they're striking um, about, they're striking about jobs, they're striking about cuts to pay, and they're calling for a 7% um, pay rise. So we're seeing, I mean, the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, he's consistently said it's not to do with the government and that it's down to uh, what he calls outdated unions not liking progress. And he's also, um, he used his time in the Commons to appeal directly to workers not to strike. Um, but just today, the head of the RMT union, which is the biggest rail union in the UK, has said it's not inevitable. He said no strike's inevitable until it happens um, and that it's the government who are, who are um, driving dragging their feet uh, and not doing
doing something about this. But the thing is, I mean, coming up this weekend, there are three days of strikes this week, including one on Saturday. And coming up this weekend, too, is Glastonbury Festival. This is the first one they've had uh, in three years. And they've let, I mean, they've let everyone who originally bought tickets keep their tickets for this festival. And lots of people who, who would have got the train, it's sort of in the west of uh, England, who would have got the train now might be forced to, to drive, might be forced to take other forms of transport. And I mean, that's just one thing that's going on. It's coming into summertime. You've got lots of these events, lots of people trying to get to work, and it's going to have a huge impact. Yeah, it is. Ellie, thank you very much for your time. Also, flights around the UK uh, as well, uh, delayed as well. Baggage uh, woes at Heathrow. I see EasyJet announcing plans to cut 7% of their flights as well. Uh, Yeah, travel not so fun in Europe at the moment. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National with me, Nathan Radade. I'm always keen for your feedback. Yeah, let me know about the makariri happening around you. How cold is it around you? Um, I felt, do you know what? It was weird. I was. I think I might have built it up a bit in my head last night. I woke up expecting to be freezing. I wasn't too bad today. So there you go. Uh, 21010, you can email us first up at rnz.co.nz if anything in the show grips your fancy this morning. Uh, in Central Africa, a giant slab of carbon-rich peatland discovered by a team of British and Congolese scientists is under threat from oil companies and farming. The carbon has to be kept in the ground to avoid accelerating climate change, but some plots have already been sold for oil exploration. The Republic of Congo is planning to develop the land for agriculture unless richer nations deliver more financial assistance. The BBC's Andrew Harding reports. In the vast forests of Central Africa, a group of scientists are hacking their way towards a remarkable discovery. This formidable team has spent years tracing the outlines of something huge and hidden and precious. Just uh, entering the coordinates of a point that's about three kilometres away. It's gruelling work in near impenetrable swamps full of snakes and crocodiles. But the scientists, using handheld drills, have discovered a fantastically large expanse of peat. So we want as many samples as possible from as many different locations. And this rotting vegetation is important because it traps carbon. We estimate that there's around 30 billion tonnes of carbon stored in the peatlands of the Cuvette Central in the Congo Basin, and that's equivalent to around 20 years of US fossil fuel emissions, so a huge amount of carbon. The scientists here have discovered something extraordinary in these swamps. A slab of peat that's two metres deep and as large as England. It's the biggest of its kind anywhere in the world, and that makes it incredibly important when it comes to climate change. If all this carbon is released in, into the atmosphere, it can, or we can say, accelerate the global change. Climate change. And do you think that is a realistic threat? I think it's a threat, yeah. The Congo peatlands have been quietly trapping and storing carbon dioxide for thousands of years, but humans could change all that fast. These vast peatlands are already under threat. That's because all around the Congo peat basin, developers, farmers, growing populations are looking for ways 
to make money out of this land. We found these farmers tapping palm trees for palm wine. But the process kills the trees and the peat below. So how to save all this? Congo's peatlands are the world's lungs, but rich nations, the biggest polluters, should pay for that service, should pay to protect them. Why should we stay poor so you can breed? A reasonable question, but outside help has been slow to reach these isolated forests. Is it your sense that the international community has shown commitment, money, to sort this? I think not yet, not enough money. I think, I think there's, these ecosystems aren't yet valued as they should be at an international level. The scientists have done their work. Now the race is on to prevent these precious peatlands from going up in smoke. That's the BBC's Andrew Harding. Twenty-two past five. I'm Nathan Rarity. You're with first up on RNZ National. Coming up later on the show, I'll say the time again. Also, a children's charity says over two thousand school kids are currently on their waiting list for getting help with food and clothes. And also, we meet some very excited Tongan rugby league fans. Julian Assange's lawyers have just under a fortnight to appeal the British government's decision to allow the extradition of the WikiLeaks founder to the United States. For the last decade, the US has been trying to put the Australian on trial for the publication of classified documents. Now, though, calls are growing for the Australian government to lobby the USA to drop the case against Mr Assange. The ABC's Matt Bamford reports. A plea for help from an anguished partner. Stella Assange is calling on the Australian government to assist her husband. The only end result is is his freedom. You know that that's that should be the only the only goal here is to to free Julian because this has been going on since 2010. He's been in prison for over three years, and the case against him is a travesty. For 10 years, the US government has pursued Julian Assange over the release of thousands of sensitive documents. He's been detained in London's Belmarsh prison since 2019 when he was dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy. US prosecutors say Julian Assange violated the Espionage Act and it's closer to winning a crucial battle in the fight to hold him accountable. Stella Assange says he was exposing war crimes and abuses of power. It's an act that's being repurposed in order to criminalise journalism, basically. And, of course, if you say that publishing information is a crime, then uh, Julian's guilty. He published information and he, he faces a lifetime in prison for it. The British government has approved the extradition of the WikiLeaks founder. Greg Barnes SC is a member of Mr Assange's Australian-based legal team. Well, it's a, it's a great blow because it's a blow for freedom of the press um, because this case, of course, is all about freedom of the press, but it also means that Julian Assange is facing real danger in the United States of a very long jail term uh, if he is extradited, uh, but secondly, a continued decline in his mental and physical health. An appeal is expected and it could be years before an outcome is finalised. Nick Vamos is the former head of extradition at Britain's Crown Prosecution Service. It's been a bit like a game of snakes and ladders so far. So he got all the way up to the Supreme Court, well, the door of the Supreme Court on the question of prison conditions, then he sort of slid back down again. Now he's going to try and go all the way up to the Supreme Court on all these other arguments of political motivation, journalistic freedom, fair trial, etc. If he loses all of those, 
Then the case will go back to the Secretary of State. She'll make the order and he can then ask the European Court of Human Rights to intervene. It's possible that we could still be talking about this extradition in you know, 2025. The federal government here maintains Australia is not a party to Julian Assange's case. But Foreign Minister Penny Wong's comments that the case has dragged on for too long are being read as a sign of support. Greg Barnes says the Albanese government has an opportunity to press his client's case. We just point to the comments that have been made by the Foreign Minister and by the Prime Minister uh, significantly, um, and that is that Australia needs to get involved in this case because it is an unusual case. Realistically, how much can Australia do, though, given that this is a case that's being uh, played out in the UK and will be played out potentially in the US? Well, there is precedent for Australia doing this. Uh, We saw most famously the David Hicks case back in, I think, 2004 when the Howard government used its uh, good officers with the uh, Bush administration to get David Hicks back to safety from Guantanamo Bay. We saw it in Kylie Moore Gilbert, for example. Simply because a case is before uh, or other jurisdictions doesn't mean that Australia can't get involved. In a statement to the ABC, Deputy Prime Minister Richard Marles says the case is a matter for the United Kingdom and Julian Assange will be given consular assistance like any other Australian. Stella Assange is hoping it'll do more to help free her husband. The Australian government can and should be speaking to its closest ally to bring this matter to a close. That story by the ABC's Matt Bamford. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's a real horn of plenty this morning. Cornucopia of birthdays and inventions and happenings on this day that we call the 21st of June. On this day in 1893, people went, whoa, what is that? It was the first Ferris wheel. It was invented. This is how it got its name. George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. There you are. He was a Pittsburgh engineer. I thought it might be Ferris because it's made out of metal, but I was just trying too hard. It's just actually named after him. And it was at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. So that's nice. Also on this day in 1948, Columbia Records introduced the LP. So if you like your LPs, there you go. Um... Of course, 33 and a third revolutions per minute. Remember those? Before, it was the really heavy, super heavy ones. They're about 15 kilos each, those things, the 78s that went around. What was the very first um, thing released as, as an LP? Well, it was a repeat. It was a reissue of the voice of Frank Sinatra. There you are, which had been uh, released two years earlier. And yeah, I did. I accidentally went to his funeral. We'll talk about that again one day. Well, I didn't quite go to it, but I went past it. Uh, anyway, uh, the computer mouse was patented this day by Douglas Engelbart in 1967. Uh, Jaws swam into cinemas on this day in 1975. Ugh. The director, Steven Spielberg, he was only 28 when he when he talked them into letting them do it. Uh, but anyway, it took 38 days to break $100 million at the box office, and box offices were never the same. In 1976, country singer Reba McIntyre wed national stair wrestling champion Charlie Battles. They divorced uh, about nine years later, but that's still pretty good for celebrity marriages. Chris Pratt was born on this day in 79. Prince William born on this day in 1982. And also, happy birthday to you, Lana Del Rey. Born in 1983. Let's look at all things Binis, and it's Anan Zaki who's with me. Kia ora Anan, how are you? 
Kia ora, Nathan. Very well, very well. Thank you. How about you? I'm pretty good, but the uh, the jib the, the the jib board thing. This is quite interesting where it goes. So I've heard about the story for months. It's finally come to a bit of a head, and one of those heads might have to roll. Is that right, Anand? Well, that's right. That's uh, that's well put. <laughs> you might remember. Yeah, recently we had the story about simplicity. This really is the story that just keeps on giving. Uh, very publicly, Simplicity called out Fletcher Building over the jib board shortage and they dumped uh, them as a supplier and instead began importing a plasterboard from overseas at a cheaper price and at a faster delivery time. So both uh, them and the Shareholders Association met with Fletcher Building last Friday to voice their concern and criticism And look, it turns out the two groups, Simplicity and the Shareholders Association, came away a bit disappointed from the meeting. And in a letter to the Fletcher chair, Bruce Hassel, the two groups are holding the Fletcher's board and the company fully responsible for the shortage and criticised its attitude to stakeholders. It's quite scathing, I have to say. And they said that they... Uh, They haven't seen Fletcher properly admit fault for its role in the supply crisis of uh, plasterboard or jibboard, as we call it. And uh, they say their refusal to acknowledge the unhappiness of stakeholders uh, speaks to a corporate culture based more on hubris than humility. And they hit out at what they call poor risk management and business decision making, with the jibboard crisis being a classic example of that. So the chair, Bruce Hassel, uh, and I think this is what really got them, uh, received just over $344,000 in director's fees last year, and the lowest paid director got more than $170,000. And Simplicity and Shareholders Association are saying that those fees should mean superior share price performance and a whole bunch of happy customers, which uh, I take it just as uh, hasn't been the case uh, at the, at this stage. So they want Bruce Hassel, to, uh, the chair, to resign and other directors should put themselves up for re-election at the next annual meeting. And on the other hand, Fletcher has dodged calls for uh, Bruce Hassel to resign and for reviews into how it operates. It says it'll uh, keep engaging with both parties and uh, offers their sympathies to affected customers and it's running plants around the clock and is importing more from overseas so look i suspect we haven't heard the end of the story yet nathan oh, i love that one. Oh, i would really really uh, just really feel for you uh, as long as you get paid my dividends i'm good uh is what they've got it's having a look here on the fletcher's website one two three four five six seven board members that's a that's a lucrative board to be on um, too bad if you want their product. Thank you very much, uh, Anand Zaki. Also, too, you can hear about Air New Zealand expecting travel demands to recover well this year when you tune in to hear the business team on Morning Report at 10 to 7. Well, Kids Can has launched an urgent appeal to help children as winter hits, with its monthly donors having dropped for the first time in the program's 17-year history, as people find donating a little harder now with costs. The charity says it's seeing a spike in the number of families living in impoverished conditions, with more than 2,000 children now on the wait list for food and other help. I spoke with Sue Dooley of the Bright Start Early Learning Centre in Porirua to find out about the difference you can make by supporting Kids Can, and I started by asking what the charity is helping to provide for children there in need at the moment. We basically can feed the children all day. 
We've got gumboots this year, which is amazing. A niche treatment, jackets, shoes and socks. Oh, wow. All of those things. I mean, gosh, even, the, you know, the one you mentioned there that I hadn't heard about was the knit treatment, because when that one comes along, that can end up being very pricey for people, can't it? Well, exactly. And if they don't all do it all at the same time, it's just, it never gets on top of. And of course, the little ones often have older siblings that are taking it to the primary schools. So if we can give all our families knit treatment, we know we can get on top of it. Yeah, now just tell us, what sort of difference does it make to these children? You know, not, not their families, let's talk about the kids. The kids themselves getting that, like the gumboots and the food and what have you. Oh, the children absolutely love their new gumboots and some won't take them off. <laughs> and the jackets, they just, they absolutely love what they're given and they treasure them. And it's taken a while to get the children used to the food that we provide, but they are all eating the meals and they are happy and they have a lot more energy and they're all turning up as well. We found that some of the children wouldn't come until payday mm. when they had to supply their own food. So they're turning up every day. Oh, wow. So so some of the children there who eat mostly at your centre are because the, the caregivers are just under such pressure they can't afford to put food on the table. Well, that's the reality of it all, especially now with uh, prices just getting a lot harder for families to uh, put food on the table and petrol in the car. And, mm. and, and pride as well. Like it, It's hard for people to to come to you and say, hey, we need help. Do any of them, like, do any, have, did any of them come to you in the first place that got this involved? Or what, what was it that made you think, let's get involved with Kids Can? We knew that we needed to feed our children because we were, prior to this, we had two-minute noodles. The children were turning up with two-minute noodles, some every single day because that was affordable. So um, we knew that, that our children needed better food than what their parents were giving them and it's not because they didn't know it's because they couldn't afford it so it's been absolutely wonderful having kids can come on board and help us out and some of these families are stuck in it too aren't they because because there'll be some people listening going oh well if they've got any money why are they sending their kids to a to an early learning center but quite often they've got to do this so because they have to be out earning right exactly most of our parents are earning money and it just isn't enough for them to give their children the basic necessities. And it's quite sad. Some of our families feel like they're failing their, their children because they can't provide those basic things like food and clothing. Oh, so that's that's a, quite an emotional thing to, to go through. I can even hear it in your voice. Yeah, absolutely. I really feel for our families and, and the ones that don't speak up are generally the ones that are suffering quietly. So it's good that we get to know our families really well and we will help them wherever we can. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if I, I can ask, I mean, it's such a strange question, you know, what would you put it down to? Is this just the cost of living hitting families that just can't afford it in the same way that I guess the cost of living is hitting everybody? Exactly. And um, like even people that, do have warm houses and plenty of food and a pantry, you know, a pantry full of food. They're, they're feeling it. So how are the ones that were only just getting by pre-COVID? I, I don't know how they can do it. And when they've got illness as well that comes along and which means that they've run out of sick leave, how are they going to pay their bills? Yeah, there's a lot that goes into it. We have some parents that can't afford to run their cars anymore. 
yeah, the, it's real out there, and I think I feel like everybody's feeling it. But it's um, a lot of our families are feeling it more so than others. So, if it wasn't for the support of the likes of Kids Can and others like them, what would the reality be for these families? Would their children be removed from the learning centres? That's what was happening before Kids Can came on board. We did have parents that said we we can't afford to get our children there, and we haven't got the food. Not many of them will own up and say that, but we know we know that's why they can't come. Mm. So they wouldn't get that education. They wouldn't get a really good first start to life. It all starts at ECE, where they learn all really good things to get them started for school. And if they're not having a good feed, well, I don't know how they're supposed to learn. That's Sue Dooley from the Bright Start Early Learning Centre in Porirua. You can find out uh, more about Kids Can's appeal at, and it's the number here, 15for15.org.nz. So the number 15 is twice there. So 15for15.org.nz. Nineteen and a half to six in Nathan Rarere, and you're with first up here on RNZ National. Still to come, we're going to ask Nationals uh, Nicola Willis how her party would address the unfolding doctors shortage. And uh, first up, gets into the spirit of rugby league uh, with South Auckland's Tongan community. <laughs> The Professionals of Morning Report are up after six. They are the Professionals of RNZ. It's Susie Ferguson is here with me now. Kia ora. Kia ora. On the shortest day. Apparently, I said Peter McElwain just told me that's the shortest day. Oh, yeah, so it is. The solstice. Yeah. There you go. Get a solstice. There you are. Get a, if you've got yourself a hinge, make sure your hinge is all dusted off and set up today and you can get out there and, <laughs> oh, gee, it, it really shows things. I mean, it's the day for the hinge. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good day for hinges. Day of the hinge. Yeah, for hinge building. Not if you're going to make a hinge out of jib, though. Uh, don't use well, uh, jib for hinge. Well, not right now. No, it's, no. A very, it's very expensive to do that. <laughs> What's happening for you today on the show? Well, we're going to be looking at uh, Waka Kotahi. One of the road network safety teams there has been deemed so ineffective, it's now being pulled apart. And of course... This is coming after that horror crash at the weekend. Mm. Uh, South Auckland's Pukekoi High School mourning the death of a student that was killed in that uh, crash that took place near Picton on Sunday. Also, we will be taking a look at the situation around planned surgeries in Wellington being delayed for another month. We will be hearing from both the health minister and indeed from a surgeon uh, who's surgeon at Wellington Hospital, who is caught up in all of this. And of course, it is that run-up to Matariki. Uh, we'll be hearing about that from our Māori News Director, Mani Dunlop. And she actually gave us some homework as well. So you'll be hearing how well we've done. Oh, and I've left schools to not to have homework. It's the whole point. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, you come back to RNZ, <laughs> see, and then you, then you get you homework do, don't again. You do, you, Just never mm-hmm. stop learning. There you are. That's right. Thank Lifelong you. learning. <laughs> Thank you very much, Susie Ferguson. Yes, uh, well, uh, there's been much to discuss with um, uh, politics at the moment. Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis joins us every uh, Tuesday morning uh, on the show. This week I discussed roading, the doctor shortage, also the debacle with Jib Board. But first we discussed Nationals' victory in the Tauranga by-election, which was the result that I was pretty sure National would have been over the moon with. 
Yes, look, we're really pleased for Sam. He ran an outstanding campaign and he'll be a great representative for Tauranga and a new member of our caucus. And I'm looking forward to welcoming him on board today. And he had an emphatic victory. It was a great result. The people of Tauranga sent a very clear message that they are sick and tired of the government and that they want to put their support behind national. So mm. we're thrilled with that result. I was also having a look there. So only 19,000 out of an eligible 51,000 bothered to vote. And I'm thinking there, you know, for our own democracy, it's better if we get more people voting, right? Why do you think New Zealanders never really head to the polls like we see in other countries? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? In the general election, we do get very good voter turnout compared to lots of countries around the world, you know, a lot better than America and other countries that we might compare ourselves with. So that's positive. But we do see that dip in by-elections, historically being the case. And I think it's just simply because there isn't the buzz that there is around a general election and that gets people to the polls. So I always say... I don't care which way you vote, just make sure you vote. And that would always remind my message. Mm. Well, I mean, everyone was horrified about the, the tragic crash near Picton. And obviously, you know, that raises questions about our, our, the country's road safety strategy. I mean, I'm not, not blaming any, any form of government or politician for an accident that happens, but is there anything we, we can do with our roading to, to make it safer, do you think? Well, look, can I just first say, Nathan, my sincere condolences to the family and everyone who knew those victims. Clearly a really tragic incident and my thoughts are with all of those who've lost their loved ones and and all of those who've lost people on the roads because I'm sure hearing stories like this is triggering for a lot of people. And yes, road safety is important and there are things that governments can do in terms of the safety of the roads, in terms of making sure that we minimise the risks. I think we do have to be realistic. There will always be an element of human error that can occur. We don't know what occurred in this instance yet and there will be a full investigation into it but I think what it does highlight for all of us is that this is why we do need to see those investments in safe roads into the future and um, I think governments of all stripes agree with that. Yeah. Oh, let's switch to a different subject here, South Auckland GPs. Now this is interesting, I spoke to uh, the head of the biggest GPs cooperative last week and he said part of the problem they've got is that everyone leaves medical school and wants to be a specialist, not actually go into being a GP, too much paperwork to do, you know, your work is, is, is there and it's, it's, there's a lot to take on. So I see South Auckland GPs being incentivised with cash to stay open after hours in order to take pressure off Middlemore Hospital. What do you make of that strategy? Well, look, we are seeing really serious pressure on our health workforce, and that's clear up and down the country. We've got a deficit of nurses. We've got uh, hospitals that in many cases are being overrun, people having to do extra shifts, patients waiting for longer, and there are cracks really appearing in our health system. When I heard at the weekend of this scheme to try and take some pressure off the emergency waiting rooms, I, I just thought, look, it's more evidence that the system is not delivering as it stands and that's a band-aid solution for what has become a really troubling uh, set of issues. National has been consistently saying look to take pressure 
off our health workforce. That's why we've got to get those immigration settings right. We shouldn't be having nurses on a B list, which means that uh, they have to wait two years for permanent residency. We should be inviting them on good terms to New Zealand and retaining those that we have. And there is a lot more that we could be doing in that sense to shore up some of the pressure in the system. And we also continue to say, look, with the health force under this much pressure with so much illness coming through the system this is not the time for the government to be doing a full-scale restructure putting hundreds of millions of dollars into rearranging the structures of the health system and the bureaucracy behind it completely the wrong time for that the east care urgent medical centers in botany and that, that used to be 24 hours Um, Mm. But that was cut in December 2020 and now it closes at 11pm. If it was open 24 hours, that, that sort of thing would help ease pressure at Middlemore, would it not? What the message has always been from people in the health system is go to the emergency room if it's an emergency and if it's something that you could go to a doctor about during normal hours, go to a doctor during normal hours. And I think it's important that people have confidence that if they are facing an emergency accident or medical condition, they can present to an emergency room and get the best care available. And yes, it's important that we also have doctors that work long hours, but we need functioning emergency rooms. And I'd highlight that one of the things Labor did when they came to power was they got rid of National's health targets. One of those targets was shorter waiting times in emergency departments. And what we've seen since that target was removed, inevitably, is that waiting times have got longer. Mm. That's really difficult for patients. You know, Christopher Luxon is the MP for for Botany, Mm. where that East Care Urgent Medical Centre is. He could jump up and down and make some noise about this to try and... You know, try and keep it open for the consti- you know for his constituents there. Have it open twenty four seven because East Auckland is that that electorate's the only one in in Auckland without a twenty four seven health service. Is it something that you think he's going to be talking about soon, or does, is he even aware of it? Well, I haven't spoken to him about it, but um, having had this conversation with you, I will. Yeah, do that. Let's get it open is what we can do. Another thing is jib, right? Building. And it's very interesting. Uh, Simplicity, the, uh, what do you call it, the the, the fund managers there for KiwiSaver, they're calling for Fletcher board chair Bruce Hassel to resign over the jib crisis. Should he? Is it something that you feel okay commenting on? Well, we certainly need to step in and sort out the jib crisis. It's a real problem. There are building materials rotting in yards around Auckland and around the country because builders are so desperately waiting for jib before they can get on and complete their jobs. National's very concerned about this, and in fact, our building and construction spokesperson, Andrew Bailey, will today put out a member's bill, which is designed to get rid of some of the regulations which are currently preventing the importation of jib alternatives. So actually, jib is the brand name for Mm. plasterboard, which is a generic product that is created around the world. And what we need to have is regulations that allow builders to import as easily and quickly as possible alternatives when jib isn't available, as is the case right now. And that would have standards on it so we don't do that thing where when we were trying to build houses quickly in the 90s, we ended up with leaky buildings though, right? Absolutely, and those standards are important, but but as Andrew Bailey points out, when 
you look at countries like Australia, like Japan, like the UK, they have very stringent standards. So why is it that we need to have completely different standards which delay the importation at a time when it's creating uh, such harm across the community? You know, uh, there are building companies that are falling over. There are projects not being delivered, costs that are escalating dramatically. We can't just stand back and allow that to occur. And I commend Andrew Bailey for working hard on coming up with a solution. And I hope it's one of those ones where the government's prepared to be bipartisan and take it on its own merits. Nicola Willis. Right now in Auckland's Pacific Island neighbourhoods, you can't move for red and white flags flying out of cars, adorning front windows, or being draped around the shoulders of the most fervent supporters of any sports team anywhere in the world. Yeah, big claim that one. I don't know about that, Matthew Tunison, but we'll get to that. On Saturday, the mighty uh, Mate Maatonga men's rugby league team take on New Zealand's Kiwis at Mount Smart Stadium. And the build-up, which has already been going on for weeks, is now at fever pitch. Our producer, Matthew Tunison, lives out in Otahuhu, so he's uh, been swept up in the excitements on the streets. He spoke to some folks in the town centre and then filed this report. In a nutshell, here's what Saturday's game means to Auckland's Tongan community. The score will be 65 for the Mate Maatonga MMT, the Kiwi will be triple zero, or us 65 MMT or more, maybe 75. That's the message from the King of Tonga because the King of Tonga is the King of the King of the Kingdom and our King of the First King is the Lord of the Heaven and then the King this man has been dancing, cheering and waving his oversized Tongan flag for days now outside the supporters club headquarters on Great South Road. I'll let him pronounce his name. My name is spelling Taonga Tonga Maata E Mate. Maatonga every day. That's and, my name. And your other name? <laughs> my other name is MMT Sonitao Malolo. When you see when you see Sonitao Malolo coming your way, you better step away because if he come on you, you're six feet under feet. <laughs> he supports Tonga in case you missed it. Across the road, the Aotearoa Mati Maatonga Supporters Club shop is packed with people and the till rings constantly for caps, shirts, singlets and hoodies emblazoned with the team's famous logo. It's run by Teki Teki Kenny Kenny and other club members. I saw about my boys, I've been yelling the whole week last week and uh, what we're doing, we're trying to hype up Tongan people for Saturday game and uh, we're doing lucky draws, giveaway prizes for free. We're doing this all for free. We're not charging anything, yeah. except for what the shop is doing. Yeah. They, whatever they give us, we we'll give it away for free. Okay. I was just in your shop, sells just Mati Matonga gear. Very cool, very nice stuff. It's the busiest place in town. People are yeah, just... It is. Yeah, um, you should have been here last Saturday. We was bumping up everyone, dancing on the street. We have to keep people out of the street because <laughs> uh, of the traffic. But um, so far, it's good so far. It start building up now. But what we are hoping for, by mid of this week, everything will be pumping up. Man. Yes. And, 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 and we're in Otahu. Yes, we are. Beautiful Otahu. Tongan uh, used to call, um, mainly known this as Nukualofa'u. 
Kapua, that's our main capital city in Tonga. But our people call it Nuku Alofa because this is where we pace and now um, most of our people reside around here in South Auckland and um, it's closer for us, you know. And it's good for our community to get around here. Great. What's it gonna be like on Saturday? Um, Saturday, man, it's gonna be pumping. Everyone will come out, families. All our people will, 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 will do what we usually do, you know, yeah. supporting Matematonga hard out, hard out. And the, it's the passion for the country and for the rugby is, is, I mean, it's unlike any other supporters in the world, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's all about loving our family. Yeah. It's all about supporting our family, supporting our homeland. That, that's what it's all about. And would you like to see people from other parts of Auckland come on down to Otahu that's on Saturday? What hoping for. That's what we're um, that's what we're doing at the moment is um sort of like a calling out to Otongan, come yeah. over here, come here. This is where we are doing our celebration yeah. and our, our, our celebrate our get together is over here yeah. in, in South Auckland. Realistically, I, I I'm not a big rugby guy. Are they have they got are they in with a chance? Oh Big game, tough game. It is a tough game, but you know, I'm not trying to be biased or anything, but I'm, I, I know Tonga will win. Eh? <laughs> With supporters like this, I wouldn't bet against them. Tickets are still available for Saturday afternoon's game at Mount Smart Stadium. With Tonga's women also taking on the Kiwi Ferns at 10 past 3, the men's match kicks off at 5.20pm. There we go, Matthew Tunison with that report. Uh, messages come through. Jeremy Reba McIntyre had a TV show too. It was good. Uh, another one here is coming. Nicola Willis is deluded if she thinks National One in Tauranga because people are fed up with the government. Tauranga is national. That's it. What is happening in New Zealand is happening in the rest of the world there that came in anonymously. You can put your name on that. It's the shortest day of the year. Uh... So get stuff done quickly. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. First up, back in your ears, a popo.